0: Hello and welcome to What We've Learned. Again it's myself Steve and it's Shane and as ever we've wrapped in a brilliant guest for you Uh, and we're talking big this week Shane aren't we? We're talking the big four, we're talking big data, lateral thinking, we're talking with a man who comes a heralds from a country where you might go on safari to see the big five. What's the plan Shane? Who have we got and why are we so excited?
1: Very excited indeed. Um, Yes we've got Herman Haynes joining us this week and he's now Chief Executive Officer at ANMUT, a business he founded. But his career, absolutely as you say, partner at EY, KPMG, Accenture and Deloitte. So he ticked them all off. Um, I haven't asked Herman whether he's also ticked off the big five on Safari, Uh but I have.
0: Uh, Me too, if we're playing that game of bingo, but I think Herman still beats us, the, the big four tick 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 yeah and that leads Shane. that leads him on well to the position uh, of his career to date doesn't it
1: it does indeed and I'm really excited to hear very much sort of somebody who's working day in day out with huge organizations on big topics and the biggest of all treating data as an asset
0: amazing so lots of big Lots and lots. And Anmer, if you don't know the name, literally, by what it means and what they do, you certainly will by listening in to Herman and this fascinating conversation.
1: Morning, Herman. Really lovely that you can join us on this podcast. And uh, a big welcome. So uh, perhaps you could tell everybody uh, about Anmer and what being CEO of a startup. I think you founded in twenty eighteen. Means um, for you and a day in the life of Herman, if you like.
2: Great. Well, Shane, thanks for inviting me, and Steve, really, really good to be here. Um, so, yes, you're right. I started ANMET in two thousand eighteen. Uh, the reason I started it was was actually a bizarre thing. I um, I was uh, leading the data analytics practice at EY, and I had a big uh, back surgery. And uh, as you have time to reflect and think over the six weeks of recovery, uh, I realized that there's a space in the market that nobody's really addressing. Uh, and it, it was just so obvious to me, um, because if you, if you think about the way the data market is structured, the vast majority of spend is in the area of analytics, uh, as well as the storage uh, manipulation of data. But actually, if you look at uh, successful companies in any industry, I mean, let's take a simple one like the oil. Not a simple one. Oil industry is quite complex, but they have sort of a few main things happening in the uh, in the industry. The one is that the most valuable thing is finding uh, the the oil, and and then the second. Uh, most important is extracting it. Then you have the storage and the distribution use of it. And it was clear to me that in the data space, there is very little experience and science behind finding the right data to ensure that you can execute your strategy. And secondly, ensuring that it is extracted and, and put into the right shape uh, for people to use. So that's really where Anmode focuses. We, we do have uh, the other data science skills, as you can imagine. But we, we really focus on those first two. Uh, when I started, the, the business people said, you're absolutely mad, uh, which, which I probably am. But it was, it was really good to see uh, the market responding to what we're doing. We Very fortunate, we have five quite significant clients now. Um, and we are even ahead of the plan of where we, we want it to be. So um, that, that's really uh, about Ann, but we, we, we have a fantastic team. We're uh, close on 30 people now and uh, growing very rapidly, continuing to grow in the range of 200 to 300% a year. So we, anything in that range, we're very happy
0: and we feel we're on plan. And, and Herman, we've, self-declared, we've got a madman with a bad back who's come up with this great idea. Um, the, the, the clients you've got and and the, how they've become clients. I just wonder for anyone, are there were there triggers? Were they all five in a in a place of peril? What are the indicators or the how easy is it to sell in this to organisations? Do they need to be in a certain place? Uh, do you un- turn on lights for them that they didn't realise were there? Is it, as I said, a case of they're in some kind of turmoil or turnaround that makes it uh, easier for them to perhaps see this? It's it
2: really is a you know a fantastic question. Probably one of the most fundamental questions we explore every day is to to really understand what type of clients respond to what we do and and what are the things that make them interested in in what we do. So I'd say there's probably three groupings of clients that that we identify. There is the grouping of clients that are absolutely leading edge in what they do. So the concept of placing a real quantifiable value on your data and being able to understand how your data is the avatar of the health of the organization and the value of the organization. There, there are those clients that really get that and understand if you want to create exponential value, you need to understand that. So, so I would say that's the, the first group of, uh, of, of companies or clients. And then the, the second group are the ones that realize that they spend a fortune on data management Uh, in the organization analytics. The average company typically spends around 5% of their revenue on data related things without realizing it. Uh, If you ask most organizations, do they know how much they spend on data? They actually have no clue. Um, And they recognize that data is valuable, but what they want to do is to rationalize their investments into the things that would give them the best return. Uh, so I, I think there are, there are those uh, clients that, that we see are, you know, are, are clearly ones that, that benefit from our services because that, what we do in essence is to help them prioritize uh, those, those kind of investments. Um, but I think there's a, there's a third grouping of clients that recognize that they need to understand what data assets they need in order to execute their strategy. And they've got a complete misalignment between those two. So we help them understand which data assets they will need in order to really execute their strategy. Uh, And we've got, um, you know, they they are organizations of very different sizes and scales. We've got uh, one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies as a client. Uh, We have a very, very large infrastructure uh, company that spends in the range of about uh, 6 billion pounds a year on uh, infrastructure management. And uh, and we also have um, some very high-tech uh, biotech companies as well as fintech companies uh, who really need to understand what the absolute critical data assets are that they, they need to, uh, to own.
1: So that's fascinating, Herman, in terms of that categorization, if you like, of a need and very clear, you know, leading edge or data management, analytics, or data assets for strategy. Okay. Do you think that... Oh, um, sorry,
2: series just picked up on the
1: background here so let me just close so siri is joining i'd be very interested to know siri's opinion on whether we've missed a group there i
0: think i'm i'm disappointed that we've not thought of that as an audience as well shane we thought we just had mostly marketing and business professionals but we have siri and maybe who knows who else listening in so that's good to know herman that you've already provoked some people to want to know more I do apologise. No, that's not, not a
1: problem at all. And actually, I think that that's actually, I think, brilliant and appropriate for the world of data today and the different ways it's being collected. But going yeah, back to the point about the, the three different um, segments, do you feel, you know, that the time is now for organisations to think of treating data as an asset? If you like, it's almost the perfect storm this year that everybody's re-looking at the way we do business, do you, do you feel that's been an extra, if you like, impetus to the growth—amazing growth of three hundred percent of Anmut?
2: I, I think yes. Um, you know, I. If we look at how the COVID pandemic is being handled by different countries, uh, for me, there's a very clear delineation between the countries that actually have the data trust the data for the decision making execute accordingly and clearly those countries have you know and and if you were to set a measure of what would be a successful country i would argue it would be a country that has been managed being able to manage uh, the health impact so that it's minimum as well as the economic impact that it has the least impact on And if you if you have that sweet spot between the two, you've actually got, uh, you know, the right answer. Now, clearly, there are countries that we can all recognize that are in, in that category. And then you've got countries that really aren't they don't have the data they need. Uh, they're not using the data appropriately. They're not taking the right decisions, and they are in a horrible situation where you've got very high death tolls and significant economic damage being done to to the countries. Um, so I I can see that uh, different countries are clearly moving very rapidly to understanding how they need to look after their data assets. Um, the UK government, recognizing the, the situation it's in, that they aren't in a position they need to be with their data, um, You know, have launched the, uh, the uh, data, national data strategy, which hopefully will be a wake up call for our country to start taking data seriously. We have enormous depth and talent uh, in terms of data. Uh, and I think it's time that we start using uh, our strength in that space to to execute on that. So I think from a from a UK perspective, I can see we're in a we're not in a good place, but I think we absolutely can get there. The, the signs are um, encouraging. Um, and and also, what's quite interesting is that you've got philosophical differences between uh, regions. If you look at um, the US data effectively, in many cases, is owned by the big corporates. Uh, Europe, uh, including the UK at the moment, has a more uh, view that it's it's the, the person or the individual that should have more rights around the data. And then you've got Asia, which has a view of it. The state has the power around data. And those philosophies will play out in different ways. So it's going to be very interesting how it uh, how it all plays out. But then from a corporate perspective, uh, if we look at, and I I include government organizations in that that view, um, I, I can see that a lot of organizations are going to be under significant economic pressure in the next few years globally. And the question is, which asset can you deploy to give yourself a strategic advantage? Which unexplored asset can you uh, use. And because only about 3% of the world's organizations use data as a strategic asset, there is an enormous, enormous opportunity for, for companies uh, and government organizations to, uh, to make a difference there. So that's that's our view. And we can see the market is is moving in the right direction uh, for us and for people of similar thinking as us.
0: It's really interesting. It takes you back to the start, Herman, with that oil example of countries and companies, dare I say it, that are sitting on this kind of valuable uh, asset, this, whether it's uh, a raw material like oil, it's countries that recognise it and are looking for it, and then how can they make value of it versus countries that find it by chance, and again, that for companies as well, or, com- or countries, companies that don't even start looking for it. There must be a cultural element to this as well. That it's And, and for me, as a digital marketeer, data is something that I very quickly saw the value of because I cannot do what I need to do as an output if I haven't got the right input. But I wonder what you think about whether there still is... It's almost a PR exercise to get countries, companies thinking more about the very lateral value of data rather than just, and as as Shane and I would say, as you see companies that just got big databases, they think they're just outputting without realizing If you haven't got the input right, haven't got that raw ingredients in, you just are never going to be able to open up uh, the opportunities to turn on the lights, to find strategic advantages, whatever your goal is, without really having that true uh, appreciation of what data means.
2: Well, absolutely, and you know the the understanding of what we would call the the data asset is is extremely low. Uh, the, the the awareness level um, most most organisations are in a stage where they are very. It's like the early stage of, of motoring and fuel. Uh, if you if you think about it, what you had was the wild west of the the world industry, and there was no standardisation uh, for interchange. So if you wanted, uh, your car manufacturer would say you needed to buy fuel from Phillips Petroleum or whatever because it had a certain formulation and mixture. Uh, you wouldn't put something else in because. It wasn't standardized. Now clearly that's standardized over time. We are still in that very early stage of understanding uh, the value of uh, of the data as well and um, clearly the organizations that get it uh, are placing their bets wisely. What we still see is a is very early stage where the average CEO and CFO is still Sort of doing a shotgun approach and allowing technologists to make decisions about what is possible for their skill set. So, in other words, they they allow lots of analytics to happen based on what people are capable of, rather than saying we need to be strategic or saying this is what we need to enable our strategy. I mean, Amazon is a brilliant example of once Jeff Bezos realised that they need. To be able to collect information, just like the Siri uh, snippet that we just had, um, Alexa was born because that is a data gathering vehicle of absolute, you know, tremendous proportion. And and the Alexa as a speaker is is not the product. Alexa as a data gathering tool is really what it's about, because a that data asset that they are building allows them to improve their logistics and demand planning by percentages. And those percentages at the scale for Amazon is significantly more than the cost of collecting the, uh, the data. So, so that is strategic thinking about your, your data asset, understanding that fundamentally what you're trying to build are data assets that give you a strategic advantage for the, for the organization. Um, and that's sort of how we view it, and it's not—it's not black magic, but it does require a different kind of thinking about what assets you have to play with.
1: That's really interesting, and I think for many, you know, we, it's easy to see the big technology companies doing it, and we all understand we are the product. You know, that's what they're selling—they're selling us the data and what we're buying. But for me, I think because we've got so many advances in technology in so many fronts there are more interesting areas perhaps for more traditional businesses like the internet of things collecting data through tires through vehicles and how a car manufacturer may become something completely different is that sort of what you're alluding to there Herman in terms of saying you know driving strategy and thinking about your business differently
2: Absolutely, Shane. So, if you one of one of our clients is a um, global medical devices organisation, and they are in a very early stage of uh, moving up their data maturity, so they uh, they would probably be classified in what we would call stage two, maybe stage two and a half of data maturity. Um, and what that means is that they're spending money on data. Um, but not necessarily getting much of a return on it. And they have significant data quality issues. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say too much, but it, they, they they their expectation was, for example, their customer database would be at least 50%, 60% could shape, as most organizations think, it was actually 6% of what they needed to run the business. Um, so the, the reality is that a lot of organizations don't realize how, what poor condition their data assets are in. But then the next thing they try and do is to fix it through sort of technology interventions like buying an MDM tool, et cetera, et cetera, which is a shotgun approach. There are data assets that you absolutely need to be, to be you know, you need to be really, really clear which are the ones that will give you the best return on your investment and really focus on getting those right. But where they are going strategically is, is really why we are engaging with them, is they they recognize the future of healthcare is going to be a blend of the physical device as well as the information device. So think about it: if you have a, um, a hip replacement and the orthopedic device that gets implanted can actually monitor. What movement you making and what kind of physio treatment would best help you to recover in half the time and get a better outcome. You save money for the health system, you save uh, People being time off work, etc, etc. So the benefits are enormous. However, it will only be companies that can understand that that data asset needs to be built now in order to have the benefit in four or five years' time when the product hits the market. So the, the challenge is we still see, uh, as I say, 97% of organisations who don't think of their data assets in the same way uh, that the tech companies do. It, if you have a new product coming online, what are the data implications and what do you need to make as an investment and how are you going to gather that data to ensure that you can create those better outcomes? So in this case, for for healthcare, reduce the cost to healthcare, you can, price, uh, you can price more aggressively for your product because you're providing better outcomes for the patient, for the healthcare system, for the insurer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's just all round better if you use data wisely and, and, and in a beneficial way for everybody.
0: And, and Herman, that sounds a bit like, your, your your. I know your background's accountancy, amongst other things, is that that recognizing of not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but that particular point there that I'm sure the ability to calculate the investment versus return on implementing that data-led approach, again, it's turning on the lights of, of realization for the modern board or CEO, or any level of organization, is don't see this data thing as a cost and don't see it as just a a cost of doing business see it as the opportunity of what uh, lateral opportunities that this can suddenly uh, allow for or perhaps retrospectively can prove that look we've been doing this for a long time but here's the evidence the data says these are the savings these are the opportunities the advantages, whatever it is they might be looking for
2: oh absolutely absolutely i mean the, the most difficult thing about strategy is not deciding to do something it's deciding what you're not going to do Um, And and being able to have the better decision mechanisms around that is incredibly valuable. So so what we are seeing to sort of round back to the original question, we are seeing um, the next let's call it 15% of organizations that are getting ready to take advantage of being data. I, I don't really like the word data driven because you should be really driven by your stakeholders of the organization. You should be led by what your stakeholders, your customers, your employees, the environment and so on requires of you to be a successful organization. Um, and the data is an enabler, but a very powerful enabler.
1: So on that, I love the point, And you were honest enough when we were chatting um, just beforehand to say that you've made lots of um, learnings from your failures as you've gone through your career I love the point you make there about learning about what you're not going to do is as much as important for your strategy so how have you deployed that Herman at Ammut because going I would imagine from being a partner um, from one of the big four and working in a very large organization to starting up uh, literally with you know one or two of you What's been the biggest challenge for you to learn what not to do as you grow your business now?
2: Oh, what a what a good question! A difficult one to answer. Um, I, you know, um, people who know me know that I I I think deeply, and I try to learn from really smart people. So. Uh, Buddha, Buddha said, you know, just as a, sh- a snake sheds its skin, we must shed our past over and over again. And um, I think that's true in life. We we are not our past. We are what we aspire to be for ourselves and for the environment and, and for the people around us. Um, and I think the one of the big things I had to learn is that if you do make mistakes, um, you do need to move on from them, but learn from them. Um, You know, as they say, donkey doesn't bump its head twice, but you do need to kind of uh, learn from those. And I I would say, what are some of the big, uh, big mistakes that I've made in life? You know, I've, there was a stage where I was too enthusiastic um, and, didn't realize that you need to get people to move along with you in order to achieve what you what you need to do. Um, there were stages in my career where I was probably too deferential to people in uh, you know who more senior to me. Uh, so one of the learnings that I have implemented in, in Anmut is to say your position doesn't matter everybody has an equal say in terms of the direction that we're going but ultimately the accountability for the the organization's direction is is mine so i do want to hear from from everybody we we are incredibly lucky to have really really talented people um, you know as, as steve jobs said the, his his job is to find the smartest people and give them a clear vision and direction then get out of the way uh, I'm not as good as as Steve Jobs was, but i I think there is a lot to be learned from from that philosophy rather than trying to micromanage everything and I, I often fall into that trap over and over again but as you know as as Buddha said you need to to shed your skin over and over again. We have some ingrained habits and things which we we need to um, to uh, you know, re- recognize they are part of us. We all have certain personalities. And and one of the things we, we do at anmit is we ask everybody to do a personality test, not to pigeonhole them, but for us to understand what are the different strengths and weaknesses that we can all bring to the table. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a great salesperson, um, but what I'm really, really good at is being a, a good architect and, solutioning the right thing. So in the sales process, there is a space for that. And what we try and do is to have different people with different strengths do a proper handover. And we, we get better and better at that. We, but the only thing is we can learn from that. Um, probably the biggest learning I've had in, in life is, and this is life in general, is to be gracious. You know, If I reflect back on um, the many, many times that people have been gracious to me undeservingly, really, really undeservingly, um, you know, as uh, when I was young, I was quite um, quite outspoken about what I what I thought and believed and and I, I probably did rub people up the wrong way, but there were people that were kind enough to, to stick around and kind of believe in me and give me the space to, to operate. And that, I think that's grace, you know? Um, so what we try and do, and as you might know, means grace and elegance. So we try and pay forward uh, grace in the way we, we work. Um, and the second thing is these the other part of the name means elegance. We, we don't think, um, the way a lot of business is being done is clearly thought through enough, um, and it's it's often in pursuit of a short-term profit. So what we try and do is to say, how do you balance the uh, you know the the, the the challenge between a short-term profit and uh, being able to to operate for for the long term? Um, you know, if you if you think. Um, Scott Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote The Great Gatsby, um, wrote a book about personal failure. And it was, he said, intelligence is measured by a person's ability to see the validity within both sides of contradicting arguments. I think that's the reality of life. There is a duality or even more than that to a lot of things we do. And it's that balance between the short-term versus the long-term that actually allows us to balance doing the right thing for for people that's quite a mouthful I'll pause
0: there <laughs> that's really interesting Herman I think it's funny actually you won't know this but there's a clear thread from what you've described from other people we've spoken with that have had you know similarly successful careers is that that ability to to recognize and, and see the value of mistakes if you will that you know they're just a another step in the right direction or they arm you with something down the path down the line that you may not know at the time that will help uh, and then having the good literally the good grace to to allow to share that um and and it's a quote i don't know where it comes from i may have even made it up but i really like the idea of that experience is not a monopoly on good ideas it, that enabling people that you work with that don't feel intimidated by well he's been around a lot longer than me she's been around that anybody can have a good idea or come up with a eureka moment if the right environments for them um and then having that leader of of the pack yourself in this case to to sense check and and politely say well let's stimulate ideas and and suggestions but somebody ultimately is accountable for that direction I think it's really really positive um I just want to come back to that last point around that short term versus long term and I wonder whether this year so we're at the back end of 2020 as we speak and COVID-19 and all that that's brought do, do you think that's opened uh corporate's minds has it changed for good or bad that balance of doing the right thing at uh, making money now versus doing that longer term right thing it, it, are we in a better place because of covid because of that or or is it far far worse far harder for us to see that that polarity
2: it's uh it's uh on the surface i think we it's creating the opportunity to think more in a more balanced way um so uh, i i don't know if you you're aware but i i led a uh, very important initiative for ey called long-term value which became something called the embankment project uh, or epic um, and what it was about was how do we help uh, how do we look at the investment chain to help the ceos of big corporates make more balanced decisions between the long-term and the short-term. Currently, um, except if you look at sort of the Silicon Valley uh, organizations, the vast majority of CEOs feel under enormous pressure to optimize for the short-term. And to give you an example, one of um, of the CEOs that I know uh, who was the CEO at that stage of one of the world's largest pharma companies said to me, Herman, the challenge I have is I'm being measured on a quarterly basis, but I'm actually making investments that will only realize in 30 years from now. Um, So the market isn't tuned and I don't have the language to explain to the market uh, how these very long-term decisions that we're taking will actually make the world a better place or not. So we created the long-term value project to help change the scorecard for organizations. And if you think about who sets the scorecards for the CEO, it's the fund managers and then ultimately the, you know, the biggest scorecard setters could be the pension funds. But the pension funds didn't realize they have that power uh, and the fund managers didn't realize they have that power to set better scorecards for, uh, for the CEOs of, of organizations. Um, and it's only once people like uh, Larry Fink from BlackRock, uh, Peter Harrison from Schroeder's and so on started to get on board and that we were able to get uh, here in Missouri from, uh, from the Japan Pension Fund, et cetera, engaged in this. Paul Polman was involved in this and so on and so forth. Uh, to realize that we can set better scorecards for uh, for the big corporates, and that will start to drive better outcomes. And, and what we say is a better outcome is being clear about who your stakeholders are, you know, stakeholders being customers, the employees, suppliers, the environment, and so on, and understanding um, how you balance the short-term versus the, the long-term. And there have been some brilliant things happening this year. I mean, if you look at Bernard Looney, the CEO of BP, uh, the announcements they've made to think much more long-term in terms of the direction they're taking with uh, the environmental impact that they have. Um, Shell has made similar announcements, etc. So I think we're starting to see that change happening. Um, that sort of context, part one. Uh, the second part of it is that we are... In a change over from superpowers, you know, we, we've had the US as the big superpower for most of our generation, and, um, and the, uh, it is changing over to, to China, that, you know, that's not disputable, all the signals indicate that if we think smartly about what data and measures could really create better outcomes for the world. Now is the time to start moving on those uh, because it's in this transition period that there's fertile soil before it becomes embedded in the structures of a new superpower. So so we think, uh, as you can imagine, and we we think big, uh, we we dream big because we think it is possible. We don't believe that you have to accept the world as it is. You have to be realistic, but you have to take responsibility for making this a, a better place.
1: I mean, I think that's going to cause a real sort of wake up moment for many of our listeners and resonate in so many ways because... I know Steve and I come across this the whole time. We're in a, in a much more smaller context. We're working with CMOs who have this battle because marketing is is normally about a longer term growth than short term sales. But even though our horizon might not be 30 years, it might be saying, "Well, investing now in your brand or your your marketing strategy is going to pay back in in three years." And you have a board who's saying, "But." I want my quarterly sales now, you know, I want to put the, the money in marketing to short-termism. And I absolutely know that real um, friction between short-term and long-term investment is a pain point for all our listeners. So how, how can we make, if you like, the baby steps towards bringing in this longer-term thinking, which I completely agree with you, is, is better for the health of the bigger economies of the world, but also for our businesses and our stakeholders. How, how do we start, Herman?
2: You know, it's um, it's a great question, and the way the way we decode value for the data valuation um, process allows organisations to understand what the value pathways are and to explain to not only the board, but to the investment community, why focusing on certain areas of value will really create those outcomes. And and bizarrely, it then marries up your short-term and your long-term decision-making. Because if you truly can articulate how what you're doing creates value, you can create value in the short and long-term. Um, but what what it requires is a real focus on where you are placing those investments. Uh, one of the big challenges uh, and Shane you, you'll know that that i'm I'm not an, a natural marketer, but one of the big challenges that I struggled with in the early days of Anmat was trying to understand what a lot of people from a marketing background was telling me how that supports the value agenda because um, there was, I think, there is there is an enormous amount of understanding in the marketing space around the things that need to be done to create marketing value. However, if you look at me as a test case, you know I'm I'm more akin to, well, I'm obviously a CEO now, but not, not of a very large organisation. But um, but think of me more as the CFO of a larger organisation. You you can. I need to be able to understand what trade-offs I need to make with all the other investments that I need to make across the organization. And the vast majority of competing investments that people bring to me have very clear uh, payback plans, return on investment plans. Uh, With a lot of the, the marketing plans, they are not always as clear. I think that the most successful marketers are able to articulate the creativity of the marketing job into a return on investment. And I think data is is critical. That is the common thread there because understanding, having quality insight into your customer helps with the short-term around your sales process. It helps in large organizations with reducing your working capital the number of days outstanding. So those are things CFOs would understand. But actually having the quality of data in your understanding of the customer then really helps you to execute on the longer term as well. So these things aren't mutually exclusive. It's just understanding that a data asset has many use cases and being being able to say we need to fix the data asset, but then ensure that we have short and longer term plans to extract value from it.
0: It's also, I think, it, again, it, it pulls back to a couple of threads we've had with previous guest sermon I mean, is, is being able to talk the right language. And this is a classic sin of marketing and possibly other disciplines as well, is that if you take that CFO hat you're wearing, I may come to you with some kind of investment case for, and I think Shane, what you think with a classic is marketing technology at the moment is just buying for the sake of, or everyone else seems to be buying it without having done a, the work to understand that the cost versus return and, and then articulate it in a way that the cfo can understand it's their language rather than just marketing speak for for what seems a sexy thing people like and to that yeah and to that point Steve, actually
1: money. not investing in in or putting in the investment case and i think this is something that Herman mentions in, in, a, in a report not investing in data and training as well as the technology and that's a, a constant fail that we've seen um cmos make
0: yeah i think so it's almost the analogy i guess is uh, you know back to our fuel again is you can buy itself a piece of, the the business might invest in a piece of technology buy you a car but if you can't afford you haven't worked out how much it's going to cost to put the, the fuel into it you, you haven't got a sat-nav you haven't got direction you haven't even got insurance you, you've got a very powerful thing with an incredibly uh, inexperienced or, or poor driver that's just going to make a mess of it yeah
2: i mean it's it's, it's fascinating one of the as you can imagine, one of the things we see a lot of are digital initiatives. <clears throat> and and those are often very closely, you know, in, in many organizations, the, the CMO and um, digital head of digital is is very much the same person or very closely aligned. Um the the success rate of digital initiatives is actually very low it's you know between the, whether you trust mckinsey or deloitte or whatever the, the figures are in the range between six and thirty uh, percent successful achievement of the business plan um, and one of the main reasons there, there are two main reasons um, the one is that uh, obviously the data isn't where it needs to be so people haven't made the investment in the, in the data but the, the second one which is actually more aligned to that than people realize is the organization isn't aligned to execute in this new digital way. Now, if you think about it, if you understood how the value flows through the organization to enable the new digital way, you would think about what different scorecards we need for the organization. And you have to stop some stuff while starting some other things. So understanding the value flows and how that changes the scorecards of different people in the organization is, is critical. And you would say, well, what's the link to data? Well, data is the avatar of value in the organization. And if you understand how the value lands up in your data, you also understand what the performance measures need to be around that. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think I would, I do urge, all of our clients to say when you have a large digital or big systems initiative Martech or whatever if you haven't considered the data uh, you already doomed because your project will be late and you will overrun significantly and in many of those cases the projects eventually gets canned uh, and it further destroys the credibility of you know of, of those areas so i and it's not impossible to sync up your data improvement plan with uh, with those initiatives but if you don't start off with thinking of the value first and then what enables so if you think about in the old days we used to talk about people process and technology that enables value well actually we now know that data adds to that so you need to consider data people process and technology and then you've got a fair chance
1: so Herman, you mentioned people there, and I know um, that Emma have just um, produced a really interesting research report, the 2020 Data Leadership Report, um, which I was lucky enough to have a, a preview read of, and it's just been published. And in that, um, there's a, a really interesting quote, which I was just fascinated to to hear why... Um, what lay behind this really, which is bend the pe- is it better to bend the people to fit the data, or is it better to bend the data to fit um, the the people so talking about people that 's obviously a core part of what you look at but why why is that in that report that sort of philosoph- philosophical
2: question i 'm I'm, I'm so glad you you picked up on that so <clears throat> I think we would all agree the one thing we all understand is uh, pounds and pence or dollars and cents. Um, And up to now, if you try to talk to a board about data and the investments that needed to be made, you would typically have a conversation such as our master data is in poor uh, shape, we need to buy Informatica 360 and it will cost X million, and and then we'll have some improvement. Now you can imagine most board members sitting there and saying, well, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Um, However, if you went to the board and said, our customer data set is worth 2 billion pounds. We currently uh, have it in the shape of uh, 15% fit for purpose. If we can improve it to uh, a 60% fitness for purpose, we can improve our margin by 20% and we can reduce our cost by 10% of customer acquisition. Um, But we will need to make that investment in improving our data. That's a very different discussion. It is basically the same thing that the chief data officer or the CIO is saying, but it's translated into people language. And that's really what we try and say is that, yes, the technology is really, really important. All the tools that have been developed are critical, but we all need to speak one language. And the one language I think we can all understand is the stuff that we've been measured on for the past hundred years, And that's how companies run. It's about the value and the financials. So let's translate these big questions into things that people understand. And it's surprising how, once we've done that for organization, it does change everything, not just the data discussion. Uh, One of our clients who's big in infrastructure basically said for the first time, I can now compare one pound that I invest in in physical infrastructure in tarmac versus one pound in data and I can clearly see the data will give me a better return it's that simple uh, but up to now uh, until we started and people didn't have that language so that's why we've created the language of data value uh, and it helps to to make it understandable for ordinary people
0: value of language data brilliant Herman look I think that's so so fascinating on all that you've said and just on behalf of Shane and I and everyone listening in including Siri your good friend just an enormous thanks that was incredibly helpful for, for us Shane I hope as enjoyable for me as it was for you
1: thought-provoking I I could go on for, for ages because I've, I've written down so much that I want to come back to um, and will do, because that's always the pleasure of having great guests. Thank you, Herman, so much.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I loved it. Thank you very much.
0: Well, we promised big talk and we certainly had it. Fascinating stuff there from Herman. So much to pick up on, Shane. Um, but just a quickie, actually, to start with, perhaps. Um, he mentioned, amongst lots of other great things, the UK national data strategy. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, what, what do we know about that?
1: so the national data strategy is described on the government's own website as an ambitious pro-growth strategy that drives the uk in building a world-leading data economy while ensuring public trust in data use very interesting that last bit you know that they understand and herman mentioned it about this different philosophical approach to data worldwide um, with the us being very much being known by the corporate Europe very much around the rights of the individual. And then lastly, Asia, and particularly China. Well, the state owns everything. So, Uh you know, obviously, the UK government's trying to balance that we need to grow our economy using data um, whilst maintaining trust. So, you know, I'd urge everybody to have a read of it because I think it's really fascinating
0: yeah it's a good word there trust as well I think because what Herman made a great case for we started with oil is that you know the analogy of knowing where to go and find that valuable uh, resource um, that data knowing how to go and collect and and use it and then uh, um, how to to, to make the most of it commercially Uh, that's not necessarily new practice but I think initiatives like this UK wide one will help just awaken more and more organisations and boards to thinking differently, perhaps even thinking bigger about data, Shane, for sure, as, as Herman's really nicely articulated. Uh, I think then you've got that other side to always balance is that trust, because it feels a lot for me, the world that we're in is rather than going mining for big reservoirs of, of value, it's very fractional, so much data in so many different places. And companies have therefore got to think really hard about a uh, wide gathering of data, literally from the pockets of perhaps its it's customers, its consumers, and bringing that all together into one coherent uh, piece that allows um, the future in terms of how you, as I said, collect it, use it, and gain value from it.
1: Absolutely. And as you say, I think, you know, it's understanding. And again, it's really interesting, the wording that's used on the National Data Strategy, and they actually reference um, the the requirement in the global recovery from the Covid crisis says that we must draw on the UK's long champion values of transparency, accountability and inclusion and the sharing of best practice will be more vital than ever to ensure that data underpins our resilience and economic prosperity through the crisis and beyond. And I think those words of transparency, accountability and inclusion are ones we in the commercial sector are really grappling with, and I agree with you that Herman's, you know, really important work in speaking the language of your stakeholders goes to the heart of this. Great advice.
0: Yeah, really good, Shane. Absolutely. And if you need a bit of help with understanding uh, that how to speak that language, um, then lots of resources, as you said, the UK National Data Strategy might be an interesting read. But um, that Data Leadership is a Report as well. You can find that, I'm sure or uh, well, certainly parts of it, at least on Anmut's website, which is anmut.co.uk. So a big thanks again to Herman. And as ever, thanks to, to Shane. Thank you. Thank you, listener, dear listener. If you want another website address for your collection, then Um, You may have some questions, some comments on this, particularly interested in terms of where you and your organisation may see that maturity and that understanding of the value of data. So please do go there. That will take you through to our LinkedIn discussion page. Uh, And if that's not enough for you, it'll also get you back to pretty much every episode we've ever published to date. So if you've got time on your hands and want to go and delve a bit deeper into the back catalogue, go do so there. Otherwise, well, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, everybody.